0: And at that point, I became white <laughs> completely. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, hi, Can you, do you want to come in?
1: Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. Thanks to everyone who got in touch after last week's episode with Sebastian. The place where I received the most messages was actually LinkedIn. Maybe unsurprisingly, since the content was more skewed towards corporate life in China. But quite a few of these were from people who I'd known for many years professionally, without realising that they had children on the autism spectrum. So that was a real eye-opener. Thanks again to Sebastian for sharing his experiences of autism in the workplace in China. And it was also another reminder about the interesting status of LinkedIn, which is the one mainstream social media platform which exists uncensored in China. Definitely something worth remembering for anyone out there who is trying to create bridges between these two worlds. So on to today's episode, which is with Yael Farjun. I had met Yael before, but it was our mutual friend Rebecca Cantor who told me about the specific story which Yael will be talking about today, so a big thanks to Beck. And apologies to Yael herself for the same reason, since I did feel bad about bringing her onto the podcast to talk about just this one thing really. Because of this, I did make sure that we spent the first few minutes talking about other things, but then there's a handbrake turn into the main part of the story. You'll know it when you hear it. Well, thank you, Yael. I'm here with Yael Farjun. Yael is the founder of China Click Go, which is um, a bespoke travel agency.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And what is the object that you've bought that in some way describes your life here in China?
0: So I brought the easiest one for me, it Was my it's my arm watch, uh, my watch. Back in Israel, during army service and everything, you have to wear a watch because you want to know all the time where you're at. Then um, after the army service, I just decided, no, I'm going to get rid of my watch and I'm going to... Um, leave without it whatever you know spontaneously whatever happens i'll let the day lead me and i managed to keep it that way until almost until i came to china i think we're just at the beginning when i came to china i realized okay no i had to get a bit more strict or organized and well um, uh, timed so i bought a new watch and ever since that
1: was my china thing so is it Is it a source of comfort or a source of frustration that you now have to wear a watch?
0: I actually find it a source of comfort. Um, Well, first of all, it's a jewel, right? It's sort of an accessory, so it's nice. But actually looking at my watch instead of my phone for the time makes it much nicer.
1: Well, I've brought you in here for a specific story. but But before we go into it, let's hear about your background. So how did you first come to China?
0: I came to China first time in 2009 with a group of students. We all got a scholarship for study uh, Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, and that was my first ever trip to China. I came back to China uh, a year after, even it was less than a year, but in 2010 for um, working at the expo, the World Expo in Shanghai in 2010. Israeli pavilion and I was part of a delegation of um, we were supposed to be the China expert, right? The people who could speak Chinese and then hence communicate with um, local crowds that came to visit the pavilion,
1: wow, yeah, i I came to China way after that, but I've heard stories about the expo. Like that was really when Shanghai opened itself up to the world like for for most people outside of China, right?
0: Yes, exactly. it was it was the event of that decade, let's say, or something like that that really, Shanghai changed its face knowing that they are going to have so many visitors and they're going to be on the headlines of the news of everywhere So it was very important.
1: And so after that experience then you um, you did end up staying in China But what did you end up doing? So
0: my first decision was um, That I want to stay and then I had to figure out doing what um, And I decided to start as a tour guide it was the easiest um, For me to start with um, had a lot of knowledge from university Um, I love working with people and I love traveling. I said, why not? Funny enough, I never took a tour, a guided tour before. Um, So it's not like I didn't have anything to compare it to. Like I knew, okay, I'm going to show people around and tell them the history of places. Um, But then I realized it's so much more. The job of a tour guide is to open a door to a a different, a new culture really explain it and really make it easier for those who are not from that culture to maybe feel connected with it the challenges well you're still working with people (laughs) and uh, that always can bring challenges i remember i think the the biggest challenge for me was working with other people with that like me never had a guided tour before and it's not just um language barriers which of course exist around here but let's say you have a health problem that you don't think it's a big deal. And you've been traveling around the world before um, and you managed and everything is fine. And so you planned yourself a trip to Tiger Leaping Gorge, but then you realize that if you're going to stay in a gorge during night, you might not have electricity. Then what do you do with that thing you need to use overnight for your health? And uh, people just, you know, it's not that easy to find out those Small details about specific places where you travel, and that's why you need help organizing your trip.
1: It sounds like that's an actual example that you're oh talking. Oh my
0: about. god! Yes, it is an <laughs> actual example, and as you can see, it's a, it was a traumatic one for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I ended up not sleeping the whole night, uh, just you know, so worried that my traveler, you know, will have a health issue during night, and I won't be able to send someone to rescue them and get them to the near, nearest hospital
1: right because if you're if you're doing that trek up the gorge actually you're you're nowhere near a city overnight right you're you're in the middle of nowhere
0: exactly it is literally in the middle of nowhere and i think it's also a special area where cars are not allowed in unless they belong to specific local villages so you have to know someone from that village to be able to take you out and, of course, pay them and the whole thing. That how do you even reach out to them if they don't have electricity and you have a problem at 1 a.m. or something like that? So, yeah, that was a very stressful night.
1: Well, this leads me to my next question, which is a little bit of a shift in tone. But you mentioned, of course, that you had done studies in, about China. Um, but there's one specific area where, you know, you probably were just as surprised as I was when you heard about it, right?
0: Yes, definitely. I think it was my, the first biggest surprise that I had in China. Um, during that summer semester, the university arranged all sorts of activities for us in the afternoon. And one of them was going to visit the Jewish church. This is actually a synagogue in Hongkou area in Shanghai. And that was the first time ever that I've heard that Shanghai has some historical background that has to do with Jewish people.
1: Right. So where does that story start?
0: Oh, wow. Uh, well, it starts with, uh, <laughs> it starts in the middle of um, 19th century with the first uh, wave of Jews that came to Shanghai um, as merchants, as businessmen. And uh, later on, others came in different, under completely different circumstances. Uh, Russian Jews, some of them refugees. Um, and then, of course, the last big group um, of refugees that managed to escape from Europe just before the beginning of wor-
1: World War II. Right. So um, where were these particular Jews from?
0: Majority of them came from Berlin and Vienna, um, just because, you know, that's where people knew about the, the opportunity, the option of even coming to Shanghai so they could tell others. Um, the rumor didn't, didn't make it to much smaller, much further away um, locations. It started in Vienna with one guy that went trying to get um, visas for himself and his family to just get out of Germany and he couldn't find anyone to give him those visas. And at some point he found himself standing at the front of uh, what used to be the Chinese uh, consulate. Um, he wasn't sure it was a Chinese. He saw some weird, you know, characters and, and drawings and he was like, okay, I guess it's somewhere from the east. But he wasn't sure exactly where it was. Um, and he found himself standing there in line, waiting for his turn to go inside and ask for the visa. And by the time his, um, it was his turn to go inside, Consulate was already closing for that day. But he kept standing and waiting outside. And then um, a man came out told gentlemen according to the stories and asked him, sir, why are you still standing here? And he said, um, Eric Goldstaub, that was uh, the, the man's name. And he said, well, you know, we are trying to get visas to me, my family, I have three children, we need to get out of China, uh, out of, sorry, out of Germany, and no one would give me any visas. And so the man, now we know, it, well, he was uh, Dr. Hu Fengshan, Shan, Consul General of China in Vienna, Austria at that time. He said, well, give me your passports if you have them and let me see what I can do. And he took the passports and the story goes that he didn't sleep for the entire night trying to figure out a way of making this happen because he couldn't issue a refugee visa. That was an order that he could not violate, but he really wanted to help. At some point, he came up with a solution, realizing that if he issues a visa specifically to Shanghai, um, it will help the Jews get out of Vienna and enter into China because Shanghai was an open port. You didn't need anything uh, coming in. You didn't need to show any uh, papers. So um, he realized that this is, you know, where his uh, strength and that's what he can do uh, to really help. And he started issuing those visas specifically to Shanghai.
1: And so do you have any idea about how many people went through the same process?
0: So, this is the thing. We are not exactly sure how many uh, received Dr. Hoefenshahn's visas. His daughter, who is researching his life work, uh, she lives in the US. Uh, She found records of um, of about 4,000 visas. But we know of about approximately 15,000 Jews that managed to escape Berlin, Vienna, up until even 1941, which is way into, already into the war. Uh, but managed to escape and come uh, all the way to China.
1: And so what was that journey like? What, um, what was the, the way that they came?
0: Majority of the people uh, took trains to Italy and from there took cruise ships um, all the way to Shanghai. It could have taken between two to four weeks at sea, depends on how many stops they had on the way. And you can actually see on their passports like the different chops of uh, wherever if they went offshore. Um, so you can see different, uh, different stamps from different places.
1: Wow, so they would have had to have bought those cruise tickets. So that wouldn't have been very cheap.
0: Definitely not. And um, many of them either sold whatever they could or took all of their savings. Um, loans sometimes from uh, family and and friends, one of the things that they did was to buy much more uh, expensive tickets and then downgrade themselves when they got to the ship so that they will have some cash with them when they arrive in China.
1: What life did they encounter then once they arrived in Shanghai?
0: Well, completely different than what they knew back home, of course. Um, Not just the climate that was different, but uh, they couldn't bring much with them. Um, They couldn't sell much of what they had. So they came here with nothing, technically, and they started very much at the bottom.
1: What then was your personal connection with, with this? So, I mean, this is back in 2009 when you first heard about it. So how does your personal story progress?
0: So... When I heard it the first time, I was first of all, I was shocked. I was like, how come I've never heard of anything like that before? I'm Israeli. We learn a lot about the Holocaust. We learn a lot about, of course, Jewish history around the world. And I had a full bachelor degree about China. And no one ever mentioned any Jewish connection. Um, So that was one thing, you know, that kept me really up at night in a way. You could say I tried to read as much as I could after that visit found out whatever books I could, whatever articles, I really tried to get more knowledgeable about it. And then in 2010, when I came back uh, to work at the expo, we used to have about 300 people every 15 minutes uh, coming into the pavilion. And so the line, you know, started um, building up outside the door. And once in a while, we'll have those where we're trying to cut the line, of course. And, you know, we got kind of got used to them at some point. One day I was standing at the entrance and uh, one of the first things that people would see when they came in was um, a sign that the foreign ministry of Israel put there. It was the first thing that anyone who came into the pavilion saw with a picture of Dr. Hufeng Shan and the story of, you know, what he did and how he saved so many Jews. And so an elderly guy was standing at the entrance and kind of like pointing at this uh, sign. And I was looking at him and I thought he's he wants to cut the line. And so I looked at him and I actually approached him in English. Um, I don't know why not in Chinese because he looked Chinese. And I was like, "Yes, sir. How can I help you?" And uh, he looked at me and he said, "Well, this is this is my father." And it didn't sink at the beginning. This, you know, what he said, I really. Honestly, I thought he, he's just trying to cut the line and get into the pavilion. It was a very hot day, and I could totally understand, you know, and feel for him. And I asked him, I, I started telling him, yes, this is Dr. Hufengshan. You know, I'm kind of like telling him the story. And then he looks at me and he says, yes, I know. I'm the son of Dr. Hufengshan, this is my father. And at that point, I became white <laughs> completely. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> um, hi. Can you? Do you want to come in? And and we got him in inside the pavilion. And he was walking around with his wife and um, accompanied by a Chinese student, because when he left China, he was about eight or nine years old. And they spoke a little bit of Chinese at home, but he couldn't speak Mandarin.
1: Oh, so wait. So he actually was from from America at this point.
0: Yes. Yeah. So he replied when he replied. He replied in in you know perfect English, um, and so we continued the conversation in English. And then. He walked in um, with his wife and this um, student that was, in, uh, you know, helping translate. And we got him in and we asked him, why didn't you say you were coming? You know, as Israelis in Shanghai and the Jewish community and the consulate will probably want to celebrate and do something, you know, on his, for his, to honor him. And he said something that stayed with me and, you know, really, I, I will never forget. He said, I didn't think anyone remembers. I didn't think anyone will care. And that's why he didn't even bother telling us that he's coming. And I remember how I felt bad about this. How come, you know, the son of someone who did such an amazing thing for my people and we're not even acknowledging it or not acknowledging enough. And that was, a moment for me that I will never forget thinking afterwards that I need to do something about it so um, I tried to find a way to collect as much information as possible to create sort of a library of that information and make it public so more people would be able to learn and research and understand you know that part of history that not a lot of us um, heard of and part of the thing that i did um in 2014 i had a chance to travel to the u.s actually on behalf of ohel moshe synagogue today's uh, refugees museum to interview former shanghai uh, jewish refugees and um i went uh joining them on a cruise ship the theme was um taking the cruise in memory of their parents who took them on the cruise that saved their lives right and um I had an incredible opportunity of meeting eight of them, two of them in their 90s. Um, I think three or four were in their 80s and the rest in their 70s. And I just asked all of them, would you mind being interviewed to the camera and telling your stories, whatever it is that you remember? And that was that was a profound experience for me. That was incredible.
1: Wow. What happened to the refugees after the war? Did, did most of them go back to Europe and the States?
0: Yeah, eventually in the States. So the largest group that we know of former refugees to Shanghai lives in the States today. Second largest group is actually in Australia. And then the third is uh, in Israel. Some went back to Europe, mostly to Vienna, um, but then majority didn't stay there.
1: And so when you did these interviews then, can you remember any specific stories that, that stand out?
0: So one of the interesting things that each and every one of them remembered, was that their parents tried very hard to make sure that the children don't suffer or acknowledge or being aware of the hardships in a way that, well, they had lots of professors and musicians and even an Olympic boxer. They had ballet dancers, they had theater actors. And so they tried to fill in the time um, in activities, cultural activities from back home. And the kids were allowed to participate in almost everything, and so it was very important for the parents that the kids will continue their education and connect, you know, to the culture that they came from. Um, and so they actually said that there were so many activities and things to do that their days were never were never dull. They were never boring. They had Sunday schools. Um, they learned Hebrew. They learned English. Um, they really made use of whatever resource that they had, um, and regardless of, you know, the the circumstances and what happened around them.
1: And you you talk about the circumstances. So how did the situation change um, once war came here to China?
0: So to be fair, we need to remember that the Japanese were surrounding Shanghai already in 32, so many years before the war in Europe even broke out. The big change happened in '41 when um, Japan actually um, joined Nazi Germany um, and then everything changed in Shanghai because if you were of the wrong nationality then you became an enemy of Japan and that included Americans and British and others that were here that in Europe were, were enemies of Germany automatically became enemies of Japan here. That meant a lot for the Jewish communities that lived in Shanghai at that time. For all of those who were British, and among the older Jewish community, the Sephardi Jewish community that was here, many were British citizens. So they were put in um, prisoners of war camps. um, And their lives, of course, changed completely. The second group is the Russian Jews. They were actually the ones that suffered the least because they were still Russians and Japan didn't want to mess up with Russia that much. But the third group, our refugees that came from Europe, they were stateless. So technically they had no nationality. But of course, um the Nazis recognized them as part of the third Reich. Or they came, they knew where they came from. So they started demanding the Japanese to deal with them, let's say this way. There were all sorts of plans, some of them to completely kill all of the Jews that were here, um, others to put them in different types of camps. It ended up with the Japanese agreeing to put them in a designated area, which was that area in Hong Kong where majority of them already lived in. And... Technically, that changed the lives uh, of everyone living in Shanghai. Not just the Jews, by the way, but yes.
1: Yeah, of course. And this is where it all goes into context with everyone else's hardships. But isn't it ironic that actually the Jews were first saved by Doctor Who in Vienna, and then here they were saved by the Japanese?
0: In a way, yes, it is.
1: And so what is the status now then? Here we are in, in Shanghai. You mentioned that there is this Jewish refugee museum. Is it known among the Shanghainese um, people about this story or in China in general?
0: I think the aware, there is a greater awareness of it today uh, than it was when I came here, that's for sure. The museum is doing a really good job at archiving and collecting um, materials and stories. I think that because of their really good job, more and more people are aware. Shanghainese for sure are aware of this. Um, they grew up with you know those stories so they know that uh, much better than those who are coming in from other places but the story gets more and more attention let's say um, being taught a bit more been um, shared a bit more uh, definitely in recent years than than it was before
1: well as you say it's one part of a very big story when it comes to what happened in those times but true because it's such a, an interesting connection that most people don't know especially where we heard about the oscar schindler story yes. um, in germany um, to have an equivalent here in shanghai which no one knows about was was a real eye-opener and i agree with you that museum does a great job and um, the volunteers there um, who are Shanghainese mainly True. right yes they're really passionate i was i was really impressed with how much knowledge they had and how they wanted to give up their spare time to True. tell others
0: they are many of them are volunteers
1: well, thank you, Yael. Um, really appreciate that. Thank you. And let's move on now to part two. Okay. Now, part two, there were 10 questions, so I hope that you're ready. Ah, okay. Number one, what is your favorite China-related fact?
0: Okay, so you know how people claim that you can see the Great Wall from the moon. That is not true.
1: Right, right. I wonder how that rumor got started.
0: Yeah, that that would be an interesting research.
1: Do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese?
0: Oh, definitely. Aiyo. Aiyo. That's very much, I I don't even notice that I'm using it, you know, it's it's so natural for me now.
1: And it's like a, oh my god, or how would you describe it?
0: Yeah, something like, oh gosh, or something like that. Yeah,
1: usually out of frustration, isn't it? Yes. What is your favorite destination within China?
0: I've been to Yangshuo um few times. I have good friends there and I just cannot have enough of that place. It's just, it's magical.
1: Right. That's the area where there's the mountains jutting up straight from the water. Exactly. Amazing. If you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least?
0: Miss the most would be how easy things can be here in terms of ordering things online, let's say or the fact that you can just walk out of the house with your phone and you'll have everything at the tip of your fingers. It's really, sometimes going back home feels like going back in time. (laughs) That's, That's definitely, we've been spoiled here. Um, miss the least would be I love Chinese food and unfortunately most of it is made with pork, um, so yeah, which is a problem for me. Um, so miss the least is the fact that even when you ask in restaurants, please don't put pork, nothing with pork, um, they would still shred a little bit of pork, you know, on top of it because what what do you mean you cannot have it with pork? But this is the whole flavor of thing that, yeah
1: oh god it's so true it's ubiquitous yes and like there'll be a salad and of course just
0: (laughs) a little bit of like pork on top of it to give it that that's what you know give it the give it uh the taste
1: yes oh how funny is there anything that still surprises you about life in china
0: yes i think again how fast things happen here um how A decision is made here or a direction is chosen and things just start race in that direction and it's just incredible how there are new things happening in China almost on a daily basis and they happen fast they happen big Um, yes that's I think that's still surprising Mm
1: -hmm. what is the best or worst purchase you have made in China
0: well I can definitely say my best purchase was my Xiaomi I love this phone, it's an extension of my hand and uh, my life is within my Xiaomi, really.
1: And Xiaomi was famous because they they have two SIM cards, right?
0: Oh yes, two SIM cards, a really easy plan for uh, roaming services outside of China. I don't even change my SIM card anymore, I just buy it on the
1: phone. What is your favorite WeChat sticker?
0: So I sent you uh, the sticker of Gal Gadot, (laughs) and um, when she is excited about something, I find myself using that a lot uh, in China, because again, there are so many new things happening all the time, you know, and so um, I'm excited a lot about uh, daily life in China, and well, it's Gal Gadot, so of course, you know.
1: Uh, What is your go-to song to sing at KTV?
0: The only song that I actually know the lyrics of, um, it's a pretty old song and um, Killing Me Softly. That's the only song that I actually remember all the lyrics. (laughs) And for some reason, they have it in KTV. I try to avoid KTVs, to be honest, (laughs) as much as I can. But if I do go and I'm forced to sing, then this is the song that I probably will choose.
1: Very nice. And finally, what other China-related media or sources of information do you rely on?
0: Mostly my WeChat, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so the WeChat feed articles, I'm following quite a lot of official accounts, and we have different groups of people sharing uh, different sectors, like industry sectors or segments of you know economy uh, type of articles. Very very interesting, and the most, the easiest, the most uh, useful and relevant, I would say, because um, it's just, again, it's just easy.
1: Well, thank you very much, Yael.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And the final question before, okay. before you leave is out of everyone who you know in China, who would you recommend that I interview next?
0: Okay, so I had a pretty long list, to be honest, but I had to narrow it down. And um, I chose to recommend Charlene Leo, um, which is co-founder of Ladies Who Tech. It's a community of women um, to encourage women uh, to get more into tech. So um, I think that what she's doing is very important and really inspiring. And plus, she's a really cool person. So that's my recommendation.
1: Well, great. I look forward to speaking with Charlene. Great. And I really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you again. Thank you. So, there are a few interesting photos on social media accompanying this episode. As usual, please find them on Mosaic of China on Instagram and Facebook, or add me on my WeChat ID, oscar10877, and I'll add you to the group there. We start with the photo of Yael and her object, which was her wristwatch. Her favourite WeChat sticker is there too, the one with the excited Gal Gadot. There is a chart showing how much pork is eaten in China versus other meats. You can see clearly how difficult it is to avoid pork in this country and then there are some photos of yang yael's favorite destination within china the other ones need a little more explaining uh, first there are some from the israel pavilion at the 2010 shanghai expo then there's one of hu Fengshan shan himself Then the next three are all from Yael's research. The first one is of Yael interviewing a local Shanghainese lady who was a childhood friend of a former refugee. And then this is followed by another photo of Yael standing in front of the Jewish Refugees Museum with a man who was born in Shanghai to a refugee family and lived here until the age of about 10. And the final picture is an interview Yael did with a 94-year-old Jewish lady in New York whose house in the US is still filled with furniture and pictures and other artefacts that she and her husband brought back from China after the war. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs, extra editing support from Milo de Prieto, artwork by Denny Newell and China support from Alston Gong. Thanks for listening and see you next week.